Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Welcome to episode number 317 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Today, we're going to go through five principles for singles success. If you're a doubles player, this is not the episode for you. This is exclusively going to be focused on singles tactics, strategy, how to set up a match in your favor. And we're going to talk about the five biggest knobs that you can turn and switches that you can flip to give yourself the best possible chance for success. Apologize, I've missed a couple weeks here on the podcast. We've been incredibly, incredibly busy preparing a new program and now finally launching it for the very first time this week. It's called Singles Matrix, and that's why we're focusing on singles today. It's really just very much top of mind for me. And these five principles we're going to talk about are kind of the cornerstones of that program. And today I'll give you the overview of each of those cornerstones and how they fit together so that your very next match you can think much more specifically, more clearly, and more tactically about how you're setting up your matches so that you can have the best chance for success. My outline today got pretty big, so we'll see how long uh, this goes. We're just going to go ahead and dive right into it. But if you're a singles player, you are in the right place. And this episode is going to be incredibly, incredibly valuable for you. So principle number one is going to sound like the most obvious, but you need to pay close attention to this. And I'm going to give you some very practical, actionable advice here. The number one principle for success in singles is to know yourself. Know your game. Know your strengths. Know your weaknesses. This sounds obvious, but most tennis players have absolutely zero idea what the reality is of the tools and the strengths and the weaknesses that they bring to the table. Their self-perception of their game and of themselves on the court is built 100% on internal experience, which is extremely flawed and ex- extremely tinted in a certain direction. We all we all have this picture in our head of what we want to believe we look like and what we want to believe we play like. Those of you who have seen yourselves on video know that it's very different. Reality is very different from how we perceive things and how we experience things as it's actually happening on the courts. And I think a good illustration of this is just think about the first time that you heard a recording of your own voice on an answering machine or in a video or an audio recording of some kind, or you saw a recording of yourself giving a presentation. I'm not even talking about tennis. Just (laughs) most people hate the sound of their own voice, even though when they hear it played back, that's actually how their voice actually sounds. But our internal uh, tone, how we sound to ourselves is different because things are reverberating in our own head. And so it makes it sound different. And when we see ourselves move or talk or present or anything else, when we watch a video of ourselves, we see things that we didn't know were there. And so the same thing applies to tennis with technique and also with strategy. It's not just technique, but it's also where you aim and when and why. Those choices in an internal sense make a lot of sense to us in the moment. But when you play it back, I'm speaking from personal experience and from guiding players 
just like you, listener, through the experience of recording themselves and analyzing it and really being specific and saying, hey, what what was this for? Why did you aim there at this point in time, in this situation, in this position on the courts? And when, you, when you're faced with that question, whether you're asking it of yourself or somebody is asking it of you and you can't answer, all of a sudden the, the veil is lifted from your eyes and it's like, holy crap, what, what are all these decisions that I'm making? So you need a way of objectively measuring your strengths, your weaknesses, and your patterns of play. And you should be doing that at the start of every match and also revisiting it every few games during a match. And good news, it doesn't have to be video. Those of you who've been listening to me for a long time probably thinking, okay, Ian, we get it. Like, I need to record myself. I need to watch myself play a match. Good news, it doesn't have to be video. This is why we created the Singles Matrix Manual. It's like a little handbook that you keep in your bag. And the Matrix is... A, a grid, and it tracks your strokes, your forehand, your backhand, your volleys, your serve, your return, your movement, like all the different attributes that you have in your game, and you simply check off, okay, is this a strength, is this a neutral, or is this weakness? Meaning strength, okay, this is a big advantage for me in this match right now. Neutral means it's not a big asset or a liability. It's just kind of in between. And weakness means this is oh, this is something my opponent has a clear advantage. If they find this shot and they start to pick on it, it's a big problem. And it's going to set up points in their favor. And so if you just think in terms of that framework, that's that's the gist of the matrix that we created. It's just an evaluation tool that you can apply to yourself so that you know when you start each, every day is different, right? Every warm up you take, the strokes and the skills and the strengths and the weaknesses that you thought you were coming in with when you walked onto the court, it can shift during the warm up. It's a little different than yesterday, and that day was a little different than the day before. And so, principle number one know yourself is fluid and it's constantly shifting it's constantly having to you're constantly having to make adjustments to it and so that's why we created a, a physical actual tactile form or manual that you can fill out so you can track what's happening in your game right now and two games from now and two games from then so you can be realistic about what you're bringing to the table at any given point in time and that's critical to being able to create a winning plan so that's principle number one, is know yourself. And by the way, if you want to check out the, the manual that we created and get one shipped right to your door so you can keep it in your bag and you can fill it out during your matches, just simply go to EssentialTennis.com slash singles. EssentialTennis.com slash singles. It'll take you right to an information page about it. Principle number two is, after you know yourself, you must know your opponent. Again, obvious sounding statement, but you need to hear this through, and it's much more critical than most players assume. It sounds obvious uh, on the surface, but there's much more nuance and detail to it. Most tennis players, the reason why this is critical is most tennis players don't realize how self-focused they are during their matches. And it starts from the very first ball in the warm-up and lasts all the way through to the last shot of their match. They're absolutely fixated on how they're feeling 
on the courts. Okay, how's my forehand doing today? How how bad is it going to feel if I'm going to lose this match? They're like worried about the results and they're totally fixated on what this is going to do for their win-loss record or how it's going to let down their their teammates or are, is this going to keep me from getting bumped up? Or if I lose this match, am I going to get bumped down? Or they're thinking about technical issues like whether or not they're doing their new serve motion correctly. Am I am I using the right grip on my volleys? Whatever, etc., etc., etc. There's an literally an, an unlimited, infinite list of different things that tennis players get fixated on, and all of their focus and attention goes to that thing. Well, guess what? Just consider for a moment, moment that your opponent is having all those same kind of self-thoughts over on the other side of the court. And this is most levels of play. Most players go through a whole match without even really considering what's happening on the other side of the court. And so it's like two ships just passing in the night, and they're kind of playing a match against themselves, and the score is like a, is like a random outcome of what happens on each side of the court. It's like two totally independent individual things. It's almost like two people just hitting against a ball machine and there's no awareness of what's happening on the other side of the court, which is a shame because that information is exactly what you can use to give yourself a much, much, much better chance of coming out on top. You need to pull your attention away from yourself and fix it on your opponent so that you can accurately determine their strengths and their weaknesses, just like principle number one is determining your own strengths and your own weaknesses. And this is how you win matches. You have an objective, measurable way of measuring your own assets that you bring to the table and your opponent's assets that they bring to the table. And now we can actually create a winning game plan. Now we can actually purposefully set up different patterns, set up different plays in a very mindful way to give you the advantage. Instead of hitting random shots, focusing on random things on your own side of the, of the net, and then hopefully having your opponent mess up enough times that you come away the winner. And the what I'm describing I know sounds really, really extreme, but this is how most tennis matches are played at most levels of tennis. And something that you need to keep in mind that's critical, the the first time I heard this articulated was from Jorge Capistani. He runs tennisdrills.net. Excellent, excellent coach and presenter, extremely smart guy, extremely nice guy. And I'm paraphrasing what I heard from him. The first time I heard this explained, it made so much sense to me. He said, paraphrasing, it's much, much easier to make your opponent uncomfortable than it is for you to fix everything that feels uncomfortable for you. In other words, it's much easier to force your opponent into having a bad day on the court than it is for you to figure out how to have a great day on the court. And this is also why we created our matrix manual is so that you can just in black and white, well, actually it's in color, but you, you get the idea. So you right there in front of you, the big check boxes. Okay, this, these are my opportunities and these are my liabilities. Now, how can I systematically come up with a way to maximize my opportunities while also minimizing the liabilities that I have on my side of the balance sheet? 
So knowing yourself and knowing your opponent are the two first most important principles that you have to put into action in order to be successful consistently at any level of tennis. Okay, principle number three is know how to responsibly apply pressure to your opponent without beating yourself. At low levels of tennis, consistency is more than enough to win matches. You don't need anything other than consistency. If you're a beginner or I would say even up to pretty solid 3.5 level, which here in America, if you're listening internationally, 3.5 is, is basically right in the center. It's like right in the sweet spot where most tennis players are. It's essentially an average, ten- no disrespect to any, just uh, statistically speaking, it's the average. It's right dead in the middle. And at that level, strokes don't matter all that much. It doesn't really matter how pretty your mechanics look. And to a certain degree, the tactics don't really make a whole lot of difference either. And it doesn't really matter who's more athletic or who has the the better racket or who's in, in better shape. Those things can make a difference on kind of more of a micro level. But ultimately, it's just about getting one more ball back. doesn't matter how it looks or how unathletic it is or how uncoordinated it is or how poor of a target it was that you're aiming for. It's just about making one more shot. And this is why pushers, retrievers, defensive players have such a bad name in amateur tennis. It's because they win a ton because they understand the principle I talked about a few minutes ago that I don't have to play great. If I can just get it in and wait for my opponent to play poorly, then I'm going to win a lot of points and I'm going to win a lot of matches. And they understand that and they maximize that and they utilize it to the fullest. Now, at mid-levels of play, at like strong 3-5 and getting into 4.0, everybody has consistency. Players know how to get the ball back in play. They've, they've been playing for long enough and they've developed enough skills that without being pressured, they can just hit the ball on the court again and again and again. And so it's no longer a matter of just kind of outlasting opponents, although there still are those players that are just high shot tolerance players. Uh, don't get me wrong. But in your average match, if you don't do something to make your opponent uncomfortable, they don't just automatically miss on your own especially when you start getting up to strong 4.0 and up towards 4.5. If you don't do something to make your opponent unbalanced and to make them uncomfortable and to get them out of position, then more than likely they'll do that to you. And so it becomes a, a, it becomes a game of strategically pressuring and stressing your opponent to get the upper hand and points. Now, unfortunately, when low to mid-levels of play, try to make their opponent mess up, they make mistakes themselves. Meaning it's like, okay, I'm going to try to stress you. I'm going to try to pressure you. I'm going to try to put you under some duress. And as a result, the player who's trying to apply the pressure is the one that messes up. Instead of causing their opponent to mess up, they mess up. And often that's because they view offense as simply hitting the ball hard. But There's four ways to apply pressure. It's not just about hitting the ball harder or aiming closer to the lines, which is what everybody thinks offense is. And uh, I'm I'm just going to hit the ball as hard as I can and aim for a corner, and eventually I'm going to hit a winning shot. Unfortunately, that approach leads to many, many more mistakes than it leads to winning shots. 
And so that, in a nutshell, is why defensive players are so frustrating for beginner to intermediate level players. Is because they don't understand how to pressure without beating themselves. And so here's the four ways. Here's the four ways that you can apply pressure. Way number one is probably going to be a surprise to you. Pressure element number one, and this is the first one. I'm saying these in a very specific order. The first way to create pressure is consistency. (laughs) Simply, and this is what defensive players understand, and they've taken this to heart, and they've decided to develop it as their primary weapon. Consistency is a weapon. Simply being able to have a high shot tolerance and putting ball after ball after ball in play is in and of itself applying pressure. It forces your opponent to start to think, what do I have to do to beat this player? What am I going to have to hit in order to make them uncomfortable enough to miss? And so consistency is pressure layer number one. The next level of pressure is aiming for a weakness. Having the vision and having the awareness to say, okay, my opponent really dislikes X, Y, or Z shot. So I'm going to make them hit X, Y, or Z shot. That's the next layer or level of pressure that you can apply to your opponent. The next one is one that players typically jump to, and that's movement. And they say, okay, so my opponent's not missing when I hit to them, so I'm going to start just running them back and forth. And they ignore patterns and they ignore geometry. They ignore which shot is a safe shot and which shot is a risky shot. And they just start hitting corner to corner to corner in an effort to move their opponent. And we don't have time to get into it today, but there are safer ways to move your opponents and there are riskier ways to move your opponents. And this isn't just side to side, corner to corner, but it's also up and back in a, uh, a lat- not just lateral, right and left, but also vertical, forwards and backwards, using different heights, using different spins, using different depths of shot. So again, consistency, layer number one, aiming or picking on a weakness, layer number two of pressure, movement, moving your opponent around to make them uncomfortable, draw them away from their comfort zone is layer number three. And then the fourth, which is the one that everybody thinks about, is time. That's the fourth way to apply pressure. And time could mean several things. It could mean moving forwards so that you hit the ball sooner, taking time away from your opponent. It could also mean hitting the ball harder so that the ball arrives to your intended target sooner than it would have if you didn't swing faster. That also takes time away from your opponent. That's the one that most players jump to. And it's at the top of the pyramid. It's the riskiest of the four ways of applying pressure. The bottom of the pyramid is consistency. That's where everybody should begin. The next layer up is weakness, picking on the shot that makes your opponent uncomfortable. The layer on top of that is movement. Okay, now let's hit different targets in an effort to move my opponent around. And the very top of the pyramid is time. How can I rush my opponent to make them feel uncomfortable? And as you ascend, as you raise upwards through those different levels of pressure, you take on more and more and more risk. And the more risk you take, the more chance you have of beating yourself. And unfortunately, most players start at the bottom of that pyramid and they they say, oh, this isn't working. And they jump all the way up to the top and they completely skip layer number two or layer number three. And this is critical. This could be the most, one of the most important things I say this episode, smart tennis players only take on the minimum amount of risk needed to win. 
I'm going to repeat that again for emphasis. Smart tennis players understand that they should only take on the minimum amount of risk needed to win. And they don't risk any more than they have to in order to gain the advantage in the match. And players who are not as aware, who are not as skilled, who aren't as good of a tacticianer, will jump all the way to the top of the pyramid immediately. And as a result, they kind of jump back and forth from beating themselves to letting their opponent beat them, to beating themselves to letting their opponent beat them. Uh, I, I'm getting frustrated inside just repeating that. It's a, it's a really frustrating cycle, and it's one that if you've played many matches and you're still below like a four or five level, it's very familiar to you. And I, I totally, and listen, I'm saying that under, understanding. Like I feel the frustration because I know what it's like too. I totally get it. This is why we created, there's a tool inside of Singles Matrix called the Pressure Pyramid, and I've just described it to you. And making the decision to move from layer to layer of the pyramid is one of the most important and critical elements of being successful in singles. And most players, without knowing it, are jumping all around the pyramid and they're not being very intelligent about when they ascend or when they descend and come back down the pressure pyramid. So if that sounds interesting to you, we've got the whole system built around that tool of the pressure pyramid showing you how and when to move from layer to layer. And you can check that out at essentialtennis.com slash singles. We'll take you right to the, the page with full, all the information on that. All right, so that's number three, is know how to responsibly pressure your opponent. Principle number three, without beating yourself. Principle number four is know your geometry. We've talked about this on the podcast. We're going to go to, into a little bit more depth right now. This is the, the cleanest and most concise way I can describe this. Depending on where the ball is on the court, certain targets are inherently high percentage, while other targets are inherently low percentage. We're not, we don't have time in this episode to go through all the different patterns and targets of play that are smart and which ones are dumb, but there's a definite list and a definite contrast between shots that are smarter or higher percentage and shots that are less intelligent and lower percentage. And smart tennis players have done their homework. They know the difference between the two and they only break away from the high percentage patterns and targets. If there's a really, really good reason to. Meanwhile, the players that get stuck in a level or just lose a lot at the level they're in, either are totally unaware of those patterns or they're aware of them, but they break their patterns all the time without any real rhyme or reason besides it just looks like a fun shot. And I, again, I totally understand. Those of you who understand the patterns and know what I'm talking about are probably kind of chuckling because it's tempting. Like it's a lot of times like the hero shot. It's the, it's the shot everybody kind of drives home thinking about, wow, that was, it felt so good to make that shot are usually the ones that are kind of the, the forbidden fruit. Like you know that it's not a smart shot, but when you make it, it feels really good. And smart players are very disciplined about only trying those shots when it really, really makes sense or when it's really, really necessary. A principle that's critical to understand here is understanding this. How do most tennis points end? Go ahead and just answer that to yourself. 
if you're sitting in your car or walking in the park, answer that question. How do most tennis points end? The answer, and across all levels of play, the answer is with an error. Most tennis points end with somebody making a mistake, not somebody hitting a winning shot. If you don't believe me, record yourself or watch a professional level match and just make a little, just make two columns and make a, a tally. One one side, a player just missed, and you know maybe it wasn't the easiest shot in the world, but they weren't being pressured or stressed either. It was a shot that you know what they they were fully capable of making that shot. And then make another column and make a little check mark every time somebody hits an awesome shot that pressures their opponent and their opponent just couldn't get it back because they were under so much stress and it was just a, it was a winning shot instead of a losing shot. You'll be shocked even on matches that you watch on TV that the vast majority of them there are more losing shots than there are winning shots. And for us it's it's much more skewed in the direction of losing shots. So, making your opponent beat you instead of beating yourself is the first and most important way to be a good tennis player. Let me say that again. Making your opponent beat you instead of beating yourself is the first and most important way to be a good tennis player. And that all starts with knowing the geometry of patterns on a tennis court in singles play. Depending on where the ball is, certain targets are high percentage, certain targets are low percentage. And the last thing here about geometry, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, like we, we just, if this was a 45 minute episode or an hour long episode, I'd get into more specifics, but we've talked about specific patterns in other episodes of the show. Sorry, I don't have notes in front of me right here, but it's, it's out there. Shoot me an email if you want, and I'll point you right in the right direction. Uh, we, I've talked about patterns of play a lot on the podcast and quite a bit on our YouTube channel as well. One more thing about geometry, depending on where the ball is, there's also a best position to be in. If you're in the right position and there, there's like an ideal position, every time the ball bounces on your opponent's side and your opponent is getting ready to hit the ball, there is an absolutely ideal position that puts you in the best spot possible to prepare for the next ball. And if you put yourself there, then your opponent's next shot is as difficult for them as possible. You close up as much of the court as possible in both directions. You don't leave them any obvious holes or openings or lanes to hit to that give them the upper hand. And you're evenly covering everything or depending on their strengths and weaknesses, you're actually purposefully skewing a little bit because you're aware of what they're bringing to the table and you're trying to give yourself the best possible chance. And when you're in the best possible position, not only do you make their job as difficult as possible, but you simultaneously make your job on the next shot as easy as possible. And I just, I can't... (laughs) overemphasize this when you're not in the best possible I mean the there's is a spot on the court that's the best possible spot it doesn't mean every shot will be easy but it does mean you'll make every shot as easy as possible and when you're not in just that right spot there's a compounding effect from shot to shot to shot where the next shot becomes more difficult than it should have been and then getting in position on the next ball becomes that much more difficult And so you struggle to get to the next ball. 
And as a result, you're kind of lagging behind in the point. And then the next shot becomes even more difficult. I, I'm sure you can completely relate to what I'm describing. We've all been there and you know we're all there You know, multiple times per match. We're not always in the best position. And a lot of times it's because our opponent hit a great shot. But when we have the opportunity to position ourselves, we need to be in the best spot possible depending on geometry. And that is a section, there's a section on geometry for the baseline and a section on geometry for the net inside of singles matrix because it's a critical, critical part of being successful in singles play. All right, fifth and final principle for being successful in singles and winning as many matches as possible is you need to know when to hold and know when to fold. I know that's a country song. I don't know who writes it, but it's a poker analogy. And it simply means there's a right time, even though there's incredible stakes, incredibly high stakes, and maybe it seems like there's incredibly low odds. There's a there's a right time to hold your cards anyway and say, I'm going to play the cards I have because I know that for whatever reason, this is the right play, whether it's patterns, whether it's statistics and your percentage chance, whether it's the pot odds, if you're a poker player, there's a, there's a time and a place to hold and stand firm and say, these, these are the cards that give me the best chance to win. On the flip side, there is frequently a time to fold. There's a time to say, this is not the right play. I need to get out of here before I really hurt myself badly and lay the hand down and move on to something else. So if you learn and apply everything that we've talked about up until this point, knowing yourself, knowing your opponents, knowing how to pressure your opponent wisely and responsibly, and knowing the geometry of the courts, if you really become a student of all those things and you apply all those things, then you'll have a very, very clear and precise plan A for every match, meaning a beginning strategy. This plan, like on paper, will give me the best chance for success. And that's your, your first goal as a t- tennis tactitioner is to clearly evaluate all the things we've talked about up until this point and say, okay, based on what I know about myself, what I know about my opponents, based on how I can pressure them, but not, not risking too much, and based on what I know about patterns and geometry, this pattern of play is the one that gives me the best chance of winning. And then you go out and you execute that, execute that to the best of your ab- ability. That's your beginning plan A. Now, if your opponent is also a student of those things, they also learn all four of those principles and they apply everything that we've talked about up until this point, then they're going to find a way to make your plan A ineffective. It's their job. As a a good tennis player, as a good tacticianer, it's their job to find holes in your game and find holes in your plan and figure out some way to make you play worse and figure out some way to make you uncomfortable. And this is the essence of all competition, is that cat and mouse chess game back and forth of adjustment after adjustment after adjustment. And most tennis players honestly never get to that point. Most tennis players make one of two mistakes. When they're faced against an opponent, 
And maybe they've even gotten to the point where they, they've applied the first four principles, they have a great plan A, they get to that point, maybe, but when their opponent pressures and exploits something about their game, they make one of two mistakes. Either they cling to that plan A, they cling to their preferred way of playing, and slowly but surely go down with the ship, meaning they never make an adjustment to counter their, their smart opponent. They just stick to what they, they hold their cards. They just stick to uh, what they started with in a very rigid, stubborn way. And they say, you know what? No, this strategy should work. On paper, this is the right strategy. And they might be right. But on this particular day against this particular opponent, the reality is it's not working. But they just stick to it really stubbornly, and they just go down with the ship. And they might even hit a lot of great shots, and they might even feel like they played a good match, but they come out on the losing end because they weren't aware enough and they weren't flexible enough to be able to evolve their plan with the reality of the match and move on to a smart plan B. So that's big mistake number one, is they go down with the ship. Big mistake number two is at the first sign of their plan A not working, they frantically jump to another strategy. And then two points in, they're like, oh man, this isn't working either. And they jump to another strategy. And then three points later, they're saying, oh, I'm still not winning the match. And they jump to another strategy. And they never give anything a chance to actually work. They never give any particular approach or pattern or tactical way of coming about uh, trying to beat their opponents, they never give it enough time to really breathe and see what's actually going to happen when they apply that approach over the course of a couple a couple games. Those two mistakes keep so many players from really realizing their potential as a tennis player. And it's why we created a tool called the Decision Diamond inside of Singles Matrix. It's a framework of evaluating how is my strategy working how long has it been working, or how long has it not been working? And it gives you kind of an if A, then B framework to say, okay, so now it's time to move on. How do, what do I change? And it gives you a framework to decide what adjustment do I make? Goes back to the matrix. Okay, here's the strengths and weaknesses. Now, how do I shift this to try to make things in my favor again after my opponent did a good job making a counter to my initial plan A. So we've gone over the five, really the five pillars here of playing solid, winning, smart tennis strategy. And frankly, this isn't, this isn't enough. I mean, I've given you the, the overview. These are the principles that you need to apply. If you want to go really deep into all of these principles, I strongly recommend picking up Singles Matrix. We've worked incredibly hard on this program. The manual itself that you keep in your bag is extremely powerful, especially once you go into the, the program and you really learn how to utilize all of these principles fully and see how they interconnect and see how they play off of each other. I hardly ever talk about anything here on the podcast that we've developed or I hardly ever try to sell anything here on the podcast. But honestly, this time I feel so strongly about this program that I really think you should check it out. So go to EssentialTennis.com slash singles. Today is Tuesday, June 11th, and registrations are only going to be open until Friday, 
what is that, June 15th, I believe. So if you're listening to this before Friday, June 15th, go to that link, essentialtennis.com slash singles, and check it out. If you have learned and benefited from this podcast and you want to go deeper and you want to support Essential Tennis, what I do, then go check it out. This is the perfect way to do it because you will learn and benefit from it tremendously and help support what we do here at Essential Tennis as well. Even if you don't do that, please know I'm extremely grateful just for the fact that you listened to this episode today. I hope it was a huge, huge help, gives you a new way and a clearer way of thinking about how to play better tennis and serves as kind of a a guide for your matches moving forwards. For more free game-improving instruction, be sure to check out EssentialTennis.com where you'll find hundreds of video, audio, and written lessons. Also, be sure to subscribe to Essential Tennis on iTunes and YouTube, where we are the number one resource in the world, providing passionate instruction for passionate tennis players. Thank you so much for listening today. Take care and good luck with your tennis.